0: Hello, Woodland Hills. God bless you guys. I wanted to give you a little update on where we are with our refresh campaign. As most of you know, uh, we've been asking people to take a fresh look at their finances. We found that our, our, our finances have dipped, and maybe it's following just the general pattern of the economy right now, we don't know. But our offerings have dipped some in the last six months, and we wanna make up that shortfall. Uh, otherwise, we'll lead to some necessary budgetary cuts. But we wanna make as small cuts as possible. And the time for making some tough decisions about what might have to be trimmed is coming upon us. So the last day of this campaign will be Wednesday, March 20th. So if you haven't yet given to this campaign, but you think you might, and what we're looking for here are regular scheduled givers. So I'll be back next week to give you an update on how things uh, are are going on that. But I wanna thank all of you who have contributed your time and your money and your prayer and talent uh, to the furthering of the ministry of Wilton Hills Church. it's, It's when we sacrifice together as a body that God can use us to do great things and God is using us to do some really, very cool, cool things. And we ought to pray that that continues and even increases as we move into the future. But it, 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 it happens as all of us together bleed for the sake of the kingdom. Okay, God bless you. Now, I, I want to introduce today's speaker. His, uh, his name is Dan Kent. He's a dear friend of mine. I've known Dan for 20-some years. I know him when he was a wee little student back at Bethel, you know. But he's one of the sharpest students I ever had. I got, the guy's really got it going on. Uh, he plays a big role at Renew.org, and he just came out with a book. Uh, it's going to be probably, uh, released really soon here. It's called Confident Humility. Uh, I read it, and uh, it, is, it he has a new take on it, let me just tell you that. He'll be sharing some of that today. I encourage you to really, really listen to this guy. He's got some real wisdom. Please give a warm Wooden Hills welcome to Dan Kent.
1: Take it away, Dan! Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Greg. Oh, where'd he go? It's probably re- pre-recorded. That's that's my guess. Uh, hey, uh, <clears throat> so everybody told me that this is the rowdy of the three. I usually come, <laughs> I usually come in the morning, and it's not quite as rowdy. But uh, I'm I'm very happy to be here. Listen, this is my first time preaching this weekend at Woodland Hills. It's 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 an honor for me because this ministry has served me for 20 years, and it feels so good to give something back. And uh, thanks for being a part of it. Um, Also, before I start, uh, my heart is so heavy over what's happened in Christ Church, New Zealand. Uh, I would just like to pray together with you, you. if you don't mind. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Uh, Woodland Hills Church is absolutely opposed to the violence and the hatred that fueled the violence in Christ church. And we just pray that you can be with the victims of this, this heinous massacre and that you can bring good out of that uh, and bless them uh, and just make that whole community a blessing because of this tragedy. And also bless us as we try to become a people who push back against whatever forces led to this horrible evil. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. We are in the middle of a series, this is week two of a series, we're calling The Crux of the Matter. And it's a very clever title because crux is Latin for cross and it's English for the central thing or the essence. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to say what does it look like when we have the cross at the center of everything, the center of our theology, the center of how we look at ourselves and others. And how does that help with our interactions with other people? Because right now we live in such a hostile time. There's so much fracturing, there's silos, there's this group hates that group, and there's so much vitriol. And we want to know how does living with Christ at the center help with those critical engagements that we have? Look, the guy who did this massacre in New Zealand, he didn't just wake up one day and decide he was going to do that that was the fruit of a long journey that brought him to that point. And what we want to do is we want to know how can the cross interrupt and stop all of the little steps that led up to that horrible decision that he made. And, and that's what we're hoping to do here. For my part, I want to look at humility and how humility plays a role. And, uh, you know, I just finished this book on humility and, and the teaching team thought, you know, humility might be an important part of this. And, uh and if you think about it, if you think about like Facebook and Twitter and the news, MSNBC, Fox, whatever it is that you watch the news, or even like the Academy Awards, you can't escape people lobbying for some agenda over another. And, uh, and it, it can get really intense sometimes and, and it can ruin relationships, what you believe about certain issues. And, and let me ask you this. When you think about these arenas where we talk about our beliefs like this and, and all of our politics kind of seep out and this is the audience participation portion of the sermon. Do me a favor, applaud if you think we could use more humility in those arenas. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's, it's almost unanimous. I bet you if you ask anybody on the street, hey, do you think the world could use more humility? They would say, well, yeah, of course. It's kind of like saying, would you like some more money? (laughs) Of course. And yet, even though it's the one thing that it seems like we all agree that we need more of, it's the hardest thing to find. It's just, we can't find humility in any of these critical moments. Why is that? Why do we seem to ditch humility when we need it the most? I'm gonna propose that the reason for that is because we have some flawed understandings of humility that make our humility very ineffective. And so of course we ditch it when we need it most. In the process of this, fair warning, I'm gonna challenge a couple understandings of humility and I'm gonna deconstruct how people often think about humility and, um, and I just ask that you keep an open mind and an open heart and just listen and see what you think of it. And then I'm gonna rebuild a view of humility that I think is very powerful based on how Jesus teaches it in Matthew 23. Basically what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk about humility because there's two parts of humility. Humility is on one hand how we look at ourselves and it's also how we look at other people. And I think that the, we have a flaw that sabotages humility in both of those parts. And so I'm going to talk about how uh, humility is sabotaged in that. And then I'm going to talk about another thing that sabotages our humility. And then I'm going to talk about three applications or three takeaways. So, number one, the first thing that sabotages our humility is that we put something other than Jesus Christ on the cross at the center of our self-assessments. A little backstory on how I, how I came upon this, this research um, uh, I, as a, you know, my mom she had me when she was 14 years old, very young, and I'm not going to give you the whole Hallmark movie story, but just know that it was really hard for her because she was so young. She didn't even have a, a junior high education, and and she didn't have a partner. So it was just me and mom, and and she worked so many long hours, and she worked so hard for me to give me the best life that she could, and uh, but she was gone a lot, and so I had to sort of kind of figure out life for the most part, on my own. We kind of grew up together, Mom and I. And I had to kind of figure out life a lot on my own. And, And I was very ambitious in this pursuit. I really wanted to figure out how do you live and how do you make the most out of life and what's the right way to be. And I was like a little social scientist where I'd watch people, why do they do that? Why do they do that? And for the most part, I I did some good things in that process. But at some point, I came to this kind of philosophical crisis, this, this psychological distress. Because I came to this point in my journey where I couldn't decide if I should view myself as fundamentally bad or fundamentally good. Because I was saved in this church. This was in junior high. I was saved in this church in Egan about 30 years ago. And there were these believers at this church who really pushed this idea that people are, everybody, me and you, we're all fundamentally bad. There's nothing good in us. And even when it looks like I'm doing something good, there's some sinful motive that's motivating it. And that's just how absolutely, utterly depraved we are. And, and they wouldn't, like, come up to me and say, you're terrible, you can't do anything good. <laughs> that would be a terrifying church if, if they did that. But this belief system sort of squeaked out in other parts of their ministry. Like, we would be in a prayer circle and somebody would be praying and they would say, Lord, I am just totally despicably wicked and unworthy of your love. And I would, like, open my eye, like, do you really think that? And I would look around and people would be nodding and whispering amens. And I just, personally, I just couldn't accept that I couldn't accept such a deplorable view of myself. Um, And it was probably simplistic reasons why. Because, you know, you've seen this yourself. They had these paintings on their walls and they had their children's books with all these pictures of Jesus. And you've seen these pictures with Jesus with the movie star hair and somehow perfect teeth. And a little giddy kid on his shoulder and parents in the background all jolly and happy. And none of these people in this picture looked like they viewed themselves as despicably wicked they all seemed pretty okay with themselves. And Jesus didn't treat them like they were despicably wicked. Why should I look at myself like that? It just didn't seem to add up to me. Plus, I tell you, this church treated me with such dignity and gave me so much love. Whatever is good about me right now is largely due to the love that those people gave me back then. And, and that's like my first taste of Christian community. So they weren't really living out this belief that we're just all oh, so terrible. They lived a different way than what they proclaimed. Plus, this is in the early 90s, and the self-esteem movement was all over the place. And I would go to school every day, and you would hear these mantras, you are wonderful, you are great, you are special. Instead of thinking of myself as bad, they wanted me to think of myself as great. You're awesome. And I couldn't really accept that either, because it didn't seem to be based on anything. (laughs) It was just this fabricated out of air, you're awesome. And I remember there was a, a poster even. I don't remember who the athlete was, but some hot shot athlete pointing out, you know, like this. And it says underneath, you are special. And even as a kid, I realized, well, how does he know that I'm special? <laughs> he doesn't know me. But the assumption, of course, is that everybody is special. But then that ruins the whole point of what special is. If we're all that, then we're not special. I just didn't, I couldn't accept that. And so that was my dilemma, which one is true? It didn't seem like they could both be true, and it didn't seem like there was any other options. And, and here's the other thing, too, is they sort of become each other's nemesis, because the farther you go in the ditch of smallness, the more and more you hate yourself, the more and more smaller you view yourself, and the more and more you inevitably lead to shame. Because the enemy of the ditch of smallness is Pride. Because if I really am fundamentally bad, pride is a feeling of being fundamentally good or superior. And so you have to get away from pride as far as possible and so ultimately you're going to end up in shame. Which happens to be the enemy of the ditch of bigness. Because the ditch of bigness says that you are fundamentally good. And shame is a feeling of being fundamentally bad. So shame is the enemy that we must fight with self-esteem and positive thinking. And they puff you up all the way to the point where you become... Arrogant, which is the enemy of the ditch of smallness. And here's the other baffling part of this is that there's really smart people in both of these camps arguing about the spiritual risks and the spiritual flaws of the other ditch. And they both seem right about the other one being wrong. And whenever two sides are right about the other one being wrong, they both must be wrong somehow. (laughs) It just, it has to be, there has to be another option I think the answer is Jesus' teaching on humility is the third way. It's the way out. But here's the problem. (laughs) If you ask anybody in either of these ditches, hey, do you think that humility is important? They will affirm that with great vigor and passion. Absolutely humility is important. It might even be the most important thing there is. The problem, though, is how they understand humility emerges from the conceptual presuppositions of their ditch. It comes out with all of the pre-workings of their ditch. And so it comes out looking very different than the humility that Jesus teaches in Matthew 23. I realized this when I was in college, uh, back at Bethel, like Greg said. It wasn't in his class, though. It was in Professor Herzog's Life and Teachings of Jesus class. And uh, I just remember this so much because he was, uh, how he did it is he would give out these little scraps with a word on it. And whatever word that you were given, that's what you had to write your final paper on. And I remember he was walking around handing out these scraps, and I was thinking, oh, please, give me atonement. Give me atonement. No, 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 sanctification. Oh, that'd be great. No, 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 covenant. That's the one I really want. Give me covenant. Give me covenant. And I got my little piece of paper, and I opened it up. Ah, humility. Ah, so boring. And I asked, like, hey, you want to trade with me? And uh, these Bible students are ruthless. They had no interest in trading for humility. So I was stuck with studying humility and, and so how I usually study a topic, anything that I, I, I research, I usually start with how other Christians uh, think about it and what I found was other Christians all kind of agreed that humility is roughly the opposite of pride is how they would say. Humility is the opposite of pride and it looks something like this and when you look at that, that seems pretty intuitive. Humility is the opposite. It seems right because as hard as I try, I can't imagine a person who is both prideful and humble. (laughs) I can't do it. And so there's something that seems right about that. But the more you think about it, the more I think you'll find that there's also something wrong with it. The more you think about it, I think you'll start to see the ditch of smallness with its fingers in there as well. Because if, if, uh, If humility is the opposite of pride, and if pride is big and pro-self and full of bluster, then if humility is the opposite, then humility has to be small and anti-self. And the more humble you become, the smaller and the more anti-self you have to become. And so there's this incredible downward pressure that gets put on us as we try to get more and more humble. And uh, one one pastor in uh, I, I don't want to say his name because he's a really good writer. But on this point, this is we disagree on this. But he says this: in the Christian life, the way up is down. He said, and so that downwardness is just baked into how we should pursue humility. And and this leads to sort of a farcical competition for downwardness. If you read people, like if you go to a party and you say, hey man, I caught a fish, it was this big. People will try to one-up you. Oh yeah, well I caught a fish, it was this big. But you read these people and it's like they're trying to one-down each other. It's like, I am just loathsome. I am a pulsating ulcer. I am a bleeding wound. You know, just like all these, I am a burp trapped in the fool's throat. You know, just like all these terrible... You know, I can't. Ah, oh, man! It's and it's such a buzzkill reading. It's like such a bummer. Humility is literally a total downer. All right, I thought that would be funnier. Hold on. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> um, yeah. So humility is a downer, and and it's no wonder. It's no wonder that we don't see this humility in our critical engagements in society because, by definition, it wants to be ineffective. Of course, I'm just miserable. I'm worthless. I can't do anything. Well, you're not going to help us then. You're not going to do any good then if you start off with the presupposition that you can't do any good. Then I moved to what Jesus said in Matthew 23. And I read Matthew 23, and I felt like my heart roared when I read this because Jesus provides this alternative to the two ditches that is so powerful and liberating and I want to set it up a little bit. Now he's, he's in front of the Pharisees here but he's talking to the crowds and to his disciples and he's using the Pharisees as sort of a prop uh, to make his point. He's about to talk to the Pharisees starting in verse 13 after this section and he's about to open a can of you know what on these guys because this is like his most aggressive assessment of the Pharisees. It's called the seven woes. In a lot of Bibles. But he starts with the foundation of their problem before he goes into the seven woes. The foundation of their problem was that they lacked humility. And so in these 12 verses, I think he gives his most robust understanding of what humility is like. And I'm going to read it and then we'll kind of break it down a little bit. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So you have to be careful to do everything they tell you to do, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help. Everything that they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide. What the heck is a phylactery? We'll come back to that. And the tassels on their garments long. They love... Oh, sorry, I lost my spot. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have only one master, and you are all brothers and sisters. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, there's a lot of stuff here. Um, I wrote a whole book on it, uh, and I can't, I can only talk about one thing. (laughs) So uh, the first thing that jumped out at me right away is that the ditch of smallness is wrong. Humility cannot be the opposite of pride, the way the ditch of smallness says. And you can see this in verses 8 and 9 of what I just read. You are not to be called rabbi... And do not call anyone on earth father. Now, it's not the titles that Jesus cares about because he uses father and rabbi and teacher all over the place. In fact, even at the beginning of this passage, he refers to the teachers of the law. He doesn't care about us using CEO and coach. That's not what he cares about. What he cares about is the exaltation that we take from it, the puffing up of having the title. That's what he's going after here. Because he says, do not let anyone call you rabbi, don't exalt yourself over others. He's agreeing with the ditch of smallness. Pride is bad. We have to stop exalting ourselves over others. That's spiritually dangerous. But then he turns the ditch of smallness on his head. He just blows the whole thing up because he says the opposite of that is also bad. And so it can't be humility then. He says, don't put anybody above you either. Don't call anyone on earth father. Don't exalt others. Jesus is saying that both being exalted and exalting others and feeling inferior to others, they're all flawed. There's something wrong with all of them. So Jesus' understanding of humility will look something more like this. Humility is contrary to both shame and pride. Now this is a little abstract and something that was really helpful for me was uh, James Kellenberger has a metaphor or an analogy on uh, pacifism you can think of pacifism as the opposite of winning a war but you could also think of pacifism as the opposite of losing a war but you wouldn't say that pacifism was somehow a balance between winning a war and losing a war that would be silly pacifism is against the whole war thing itself pacifism is against anything having to do with war in the same way, humility is the opposite of whatever it is that creates shame and pride, which we're going to talk about in a minute. What this means, a few things right away. That our intuition that both ditches must be wrong... Absolutely. Because if humility is contrary to both shame and pride, then anything that leads to shame and pride must be somehow contrary to humility. And since the ditch of smallness inevitably leads to shame and the ditch of bigness inevitably leads to pride, there must be something fundamentally flawed in both of them. The second thing is that humility neutralizes both shame and pride. The more humility you have, the less shame and pride you should have in your life. Which also means, inversely, if you feel superior to others, there's something in you that's lacking humility. There's something wrong about how you're assessing yourself. But also, if you're feeling inferior to others, there's something wrong with how you're viewing yourself. Both are flawed. Both is, reflect something wrong with your spirit. It also means that not all humility means tearing people down. Sometimes to humble yourself, you need to be built up. And doesn't that make sense? Don't you see people who are just like, they're so self loathing they hate themselves so much? The ditch of smallness would celebrate that. You're doing good. But no, it doesn't feel right. There's something wrong about that. These people need to be built up, not to be torn down more. So how does this work? How is it that humility removes shame and pride? Well, I think there's two parts of it. The first part of it is that humility is based on something different. Humility has the love of God at the center. When you look at yourself through the lens of God's love for you, that's what humility is based on. The ditches are based on something different. The ditch of smallness is based on looking at myself through a lens of sin or smallness. And they put, a lot of times, the ditch of smallness, especially in Christian circles, they put sin at the center of how they view themselves. And they put sin at the center of their theology. Woodland Hills is passionate about putting Christ at the center of our theology, not sin. And there's consequences when you put sin at the center of how you view yourself that inevitably leads to shame. The ditch of bigness puts an assumption of human, I'm great, I am good, somehow I need self-esteem and that, that desire to puff myself up, that's at the center. And that also leads to problems. The ditch of smallness says that we're fundamentally bad. The ditch of bigness says we're fundamentally good. When you read the Bible, the Bible has no use for categories like that, goodness and badness. They don't, they don't call anybody good or bad. You're not good or bad fundamentally. What you are fundamentally is you're fundamentally loved. You're fundamentally loved. You're neither good nor bad. This is why the Bible says things like this God said to them, I have placed before you blessings and curses. I have placed before you blessings and curses, rewards and punishments. He's placed it before, it. the goodness and badness is something that he puts in our laps that we can do something about. That's a secondary thing. Um, The second part of it is that uh, God doesn't just have this unsurpassable love for me and you, he has it for everybody. And if you think about shame and pride, they're always socially indexed. If you were, think of it this way, if you were the only person on the planet somehow, You were just the only one. You had the whole planet to yourself. It would be really fun. You wouldn't experience either shame or pride. You wouldn't feel inferior or superior because there's nobody else to be inferior or superior to. And so it requires other people. And so the fact that other people are also unsurpassably loved means that if you're feeling inferior or superior, you're experiencing an illusion. That's not real. Everybody is unsurpassably loved if you 're unsurpassably loved and i 'm unsurpassably loved, that means that god can 't love Todd or Margot more, because if they could, then his love for me would have been surpassable and so the fact that God loves us each with an unsurpassable love means that we 're all unsurpassably equal. So we are unsurpassably loved and unsurpassably equal. then why then doesn 't it seem like we are? <laughs> Why, why does life not seem like we have this unsurpassable equality? I believe that the number one reason is because we're living in a delusion. We're born into a delusion, and we're all born into it, and part of being a disciple is working ourselves out of that delusion. And I call it the delusion of inequality, and what it is is it's this belief, and the economy and a lot of societies and a lot of parts of our society depend on this delusion. But the delusion is some people are better than others. Some people are better than others. And we believe that. Um, we see this in Jesus' uh, teaching here in right in verses 8 and 9 again. He says, do not, call, uh, do not let anyone call you rabbi and do not call anyone on earth father. So don't put people... You know, don't let people put you above them and don't be below other people. For you are all brothers and sisters. That claim, right in the middle of this exaltation and the, the diminution, uh, that means that he's making a statement that you are all equal. You are all brothers and sisters. He doesn't say, hey, pretend, you know, just go with it. Pretend like you're all brothers and sisters. Pretend like you're equal. He's making a claim that you are all brothers and sisters. You are all equal. Equality is reality, that's the truth inequality is unreality. It's a delusion. It's a false belief. And man, you know, I've worked for 20 years, I've worked in mental health and I've worked with psychotic patients and uh, delusional patients, people who have false beliefs. They do some strange things and I've seen it all. (laughs) Uh, And you know, like I had one, I had one lady who, uh, she took an ax And she went through her neighborhood and she started breaking in garage doors. Every garage door she could find, she would break in with with an axe. And I had this other kid, he was a teenager, and all of a sudden one day he stopped talking and all he would do is he would walk around like this. Opening and closing his mouth. And I had this other guy, the cliché man with the tinfoil hat. I even had the tinfoil hat. Guy came in with a baseball cap, and underneath his baseball cap, there was tinfoil all lined up. And you look at stuff like that, and you say, man, that's just irrational. That's so irrational. That's why we have places to bring people so they can get help, because they're so irrational. And they definitely need help. But what I've learned is that the more you understand what they're experiencing, they're actually often hyper-rational. Once you understand the beliefs that they have in their behavior, their behavior makes total sense, as strange as it is. The lady with the ax, she was convinced that her two daughters were being sexually molested in a garage somewhere, and she was trying to save her girls. The boy who stopped talking, he thought that he had become a fish, and he was walking around like he was a fish for like several weeks. The guy with the tinfoil hat, Absolutely brilliant graduate student, got wrapped up in this thought that he thought that the government was trying to control his thoughts with satellites, and so he wore the tinfoil to repel the radio waves. Delusions make us do strange things, and the delusion of inequality is no different. As soon as you believe that some people are better than others, you start to act strange. The problem, though, is we all share the delusion, so we don't see how strange it is. We're all sharing in the same thing, so there's nobody to say, hey, that's really strange. That's what Jesus is doing. That's really bizarre what you're doing. The first thing that we do when we think that some people are better than others, we start to obsess about ourselves because I need to know where I am in the hierarchy. If some people are better than others, where am I at? Am I up or am I down? And then as soon as I kind of get a rough idea of where that is, I need to know how do I move up because there's consequences for being low and so I need to move up, 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 up. And so I start to scheme and strategize and it's just so self-subsumed to try to move up in this hierarchy. And it's a very strange behavior. No other animals do these things and but we do and we all do it and it's delusional we become judges right away because we have to know where the other people are where are you at in the hierarchy how do you rank and, and so we become judges. And dumb things take on all sorts of importance. Uh, even things like, where did you get your education from? <laughs> I mean, praise God that I can even get an education, but some people think that getting a college degree here is just so much more important to who you are as a person than getting a college degree over there. And they're willing, we found out this week, to go through all sorts of hoops and break laws and to cheat to get into one school over another. It's all just dumb stuff. Look at how many people feel really bad about themselves but they would feel good if they could just hit the right body weight. And these dumb things just take on so much importance because we're trying to move up on this hierarchy and we have all these schemes and strategies and assumptions of how we do that. The Pharisees did it too. And Jesus, praise God, chides them for it. He says, look at these Pharisees. They wear these phylacteries on their head. Phylactery now is just like a box. It was a wooden box that the Pharisees would wear. And some people still wear them in the Middle East. And it's a really great reminder because inside this box is the law. And it's, it's an idea, it's like a reminder to think of God's law and God's plan. But these guys, Jesus says, they wore their phylacteries wide. They, basically, Jesus is saying, look, they're wearing these big dumb boxes on their head. Look at that. Isn't that crazy? Look at the size of their phylactery. And the tassels indicated how much education the Pharisees had. And so Jesus is just totally chiding these guys. They walk around as if to say, look at our phylacteries. Aren't we just good boys? We're such good boys. We have the law of God in front of us at all times. And we're smart too. And Jesus says it's just a tinfoil hat is what Jesus is saying. Look at their tinfoil hats is what he says. Nothing that we do can increase or decrease our worth. We are all unsurpassably loved. Nothing we can do, there's nothing that we can do that can increase or decrease our worth. We are all unsurpassably equal. So how do we live into this equality? Uh, I'm going to give three things. The first thing is that we have to stop reinforcing these false hierarchies. And how do you do that? There's probably a thousand things to talk about, but I just want to look at the ditches because it matters which ditch you start in. To stop reinforcing false hierarchies in the ditch of smallness, man, you've got to stop talking small about yourself because the more you talk small about yourself, the more you reinforce this idea of small people and big people. And so you have to stop talking small and you have to stop belittling yourself and others and you, you have to stop talking small about human nature. God died for you. Don't don't diminish that which God cherishes. In fact, God even became a person for as long as we would let him. He, he, he wanted to be here and we let him stay, hang around for about 30 some years. That's how great it is to be a person. That we have sin and we have to deal with that. And that's important and that's a, that's a part of our life as well. But we're also loved and we're also pretty great. And God wants to dwell with us. So we can't be as bad as the ditch of smallness says. I think we should do what the Apostle Paul coaches us to do instead and build people up instead of tear people down. The Apostle Paul says build people, not puff them up, not puff them up, build them up. Help them see their security in God's unsurpassable love for them. Now the ditch of bigness, they have to do something, they have to stop puffing themselves up. You see, because God loves us with an unsurpassable love, it's easy to jump to the conclusion that we must be unsurpassably good. Because when we love things, we love things that are good. I love chocolate chip cookies because I think chocolate chip cookies are good. Brussels sprouts, I don't love Brussels sprouts, I'll be honest with you but God loves us when we were still sinners. His love is different than our love. We're amateur lovers. We're still learning how to love the way that God loves. And God loved us while we were still sinners, so goodness and badness is separate. So just because God loves us doesn't mean that I'm, doesn't mean that I'm done. Doesn't mean that I'm complete. Because God loves me so much, he wants so much more for me. And so we have to stop assuming that we're already there if we're in the ditch of bigness. The second part of that is that we have to stop engineering our relationships for um, our own personal benefit if we're in the ditch of smallness. We jumped ahead a little bit, sorry. Uh, I'm not there yet. Uh, the second part of that is, is you have to stop engineering your relationships. So, and this sounds so good. It does. It sounds so good. People will say, surround yourself with positive people. And that sounds so good. And, and we need to uh, avoid people that are going to sin and get us into trouble. And we have to have boundaries for sure. But we have to be careful with this because nobody ever really defines positive. Do you ever notice that? Everybody just assumes what, what you mean. Surround yourself with positive people. And that's why you can look at Republicans and Democrats and Vikings fans and Packers fans and white nationalists and Antifa and they all say surround yourself with positive people. But they certainly aren't thinking of the same people. And so what ends up happening is you just end up surrounding yourself with people who are just like you. That's exactly what happens. And, and that may be comforting, and that may be fun, and life may be easier that way, but you're not going to be challenged ever. You're not going to be challenged by a bunch of people who are just like you. And people who are positive are usually not the type of people who are going to challenge your belief that you think you're awesome. And so that feeling of awesomeness just keeps growing because you're not surrounding yourself with people who are going to challenge you. And so we have to stop doing that if we're going to stop reinforcing this hierarchy. Jesus tells us to hang around with the meek, the ineffective, the prostitute, the morally compromised, the greedy, the tax collector. That's a very different thing. You can't reconcile that. You have to choose which one are you going to, sur- which one are you going to listen to. The second way to realize this equality, is to stop living from the outside in and start living from the inside out. And uh, there's a lot of things to this, but discipleship is about obeying Jesus as our one teacher, he says. You have one teacher. Discipleship is a choice to devote ourselves to that one teacher. And that's a very different path than the path that we find in politics a lot of times. Politics tends to be an outside-in endeavor. And when I say politics, I don't just mean government politics. I mean theological politics. What's your view on the end times? What's your, how do you think that God knows the future? Uh, things like that or family politics, or work politics. All of those are outside-in endeavors. A lot of times it's about laws, and about rights, and about punishments and about incentives, and you're trying to control behavior from the outside in. Uh, and, and you look at, at all of that, and it's all just this outward momentum. But discipleship is about trying to change from the inside out. It's a very different path. It starts off very similar, but eventually it becomes very different. Um, ultimately, politics is about managing, about managing ourselves, managing people, managing resources. And we need to do it. Unfortunately, we have to do it because we've got to manage this mess. But that's all it is. Uh, ultimately, all of the vitriol and hatred about politics, is just hatred and vitriol about a different opinion about management philosophy. And we have to engage it because sometimes those management philosophies cause great harm. I mean, look at how many young black men are in prison that shouldn't be there. I mean, so we have to engage it because this is just absolutely wrong. But we don't have to devote ourselves to the management philosophy. We can instead devote ourselves to discipleship under Jesus and becoming the types of people that don't need to be managed. That's what devotion to Jesus is about. You don't need to manage a person who's loving and sharing their resources and helping people. Those people don't need to be managed. It's only the people who are conniving and trying to move up in the hierarchy. Those are the ones that need all of our management resources. In politics, everything is usually a means to an end. It doesn't matter what I say and do to people as long as we get the results that we want. You'll thank us later. (laughs) It's it's just politics, they say. In discipleship to Jesus, how we treat one another is the whole show. It doesn't matter if you get what you want if you don't treat people the way that they deserve. It's a totally different path. And so that's the choice we have to make. Which path are we going to go? The inside-out path or the outside-in path? Uh, uh, Because at some point, this is in my book, I'm very proud of it, so I'm going to hit you with it here. The better you become at sumo wrestling, the less effective you're going to be at competitive swimming. (laughs) That's just a fact. (laughs) Think about it. Number three, we'll never realize equality if we keep prioritizing beliefs over people. We have to stop uh, focusing on being right about things. We have to stop focusing on being right even about other people and start focusing on treating people right. That has to be our priority. Treating people right comes before being right about people. Jesus died for people, not for their beliefs. He died because he loved people, not because... They were a Democrat or a Republican or they had a good view of finance management. I mean, seriously, really? No, he died for people. And that's why you see Jesus hanging around people who had just wildly different beliefs and he, he dwelled with all of them. But in our world, we're usually the opposite. And we all fall victim to this and I do too. And this is part of the work of living into equality is fighting against these urges. We tend to look at beliefs first. What does this guy believe? Is he, is he a believer? Does he believe in God? is he is he progressive and oh i think we are oh, cool i think we share the same i got to get to know this guy and once the beliefs are all in line then i can start to form a relationship jesus was the exact opposite jesus started with the relationship and the beliefs that the person had came fifth or sixth or 32nd in his importance and that's how we have to do because right now everybody's operating with the beliefs first do you line up with my beliefs okay and that's why we have all these silos where this group is tagged up against this group and these people don't hate those people and and i call them towers of babel because that's what they do all the time they're just constantly babbling us and 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 shoving propaganda down our throat and facts they have tons of facts and they all want us to look at their facts and they're so proud of their facts. And they all want us in their tower. Don't they? They just all want us in their tower. It's not good enough to say, that's a really good argument. Yeah, but do you agree with it? That's what they, you need, they need to know. They need that validation that they're right. Because being right is the most important thing. We don't need to do that. They want their identity on us. They want us to change our They want us to say, I am a fill-in-the-blank Republican meat-eater vegan. Whatever. That's what they want. It's like we're these race cars and they want all of their branding on our race car. As believers on this inside out path, we don't have to put any branding on our car at all. We can, we can turn all of that away. We can dwell with people like Jesus did. I mean, Jesus dwelled with Peter for several years. And I wish the Bible recorded how many times Jesus rolled his eyes at Peter. Because this guy <laughs> was so foolish. So many times. But Jesus dwelled with him. He says, That's cool. Even, hello, Judas, who was trying to have Jesus killed, Jesus still ate the Last Supper with him and said, Do whatever it is that you're going to do. Now, I'm not saying that we should hang out with people who are going to kill us, but this is an extreme example of putting people first. Wouldn't you say? It doesn't matter what their beliefs are, just, people are the most important thing to God. We don't have to be right. We don't have to be right. Isn't that liberating? We can say, I don't know. Yeah. We, we can say, I don't know. Um, which also means that we can learn. Because we're not going to learn if we assume we're right. If we assume we're right about things, we're not looking for learning. We're looking for people to convert. Oh, I got to convert. Okay, I'm going to convert them. Oh, see, I'm right about this. And oh, they're supporting this too. All right, great. You're only going to learn if you assume maybe I'm not right. That's the only way that you're going to learn. When I don't know if I'm right, when I'm open-minded, then I can learn. I can have a teachable spirit. The, I, I don't know the source on this, but I found this on social media yesterday just before I preached. Um, the first person killed in Christchurch in the massacre, his name is Daoub Nabi. He is 71 years old. And the picture that I saw of him, he had this kind of rusty beard and this kind of funny tooth and this just... Jolly smile. And he looked like the type of guy that I would love to hear a good night story from, you know? And, um, and Da'ub, he came out of the mosque and it was sunny and the sky was blue. And here's this guy with this military assault rifle pointed right at him. And he saw the rifle. And Da'ub looked at the guy with the rifle and he said, Come in, brother. And then the guy blew him away. That was his last words. I could learn something from Daub. Don't you think? How could you have that open heart to a guy who's so violent and has hatred in his eyes and yet he said, come in, brother. Man, I could learn something from that guy. But I'm never going to learn from him if I put the assumption of being right first. Because he's a Muslim. He believes different things. He's under a different theological management system as me. He has a different form of theism than me. Jesus wants us to put the person first and that's how we can really learn. Even when people have radically different beliefs, we can still have those wonderful connections and, and opportunities. <sighs> humility. <clears throat> humility is not, it's not just some behavior that we do to like impress grandma. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a profound It's a revolutionary view of self and others. It totally changes how we view ourselves and others in a way that I think is very liberating. Because in the ditches, you end up with anxiety and shame and pride and all of the fluctuating ego just going up and down. But with the stability of humility, man, the world kind of opens up a little bit more as like a playground, you know, where you can just do things just for the sake of doing them because it's fun. I can play the violin because, man, that'd be fun to play the violin, not because look what it says about me that I can play the violin. We don't have to play any of that stuff. We just do stuff because we think it's fun and everything takes on a peace and a joy that it doesn't otherwise have. And you know what? The playground also has tons of brothers and sisters who are all very strange and some of them are just really out there, but man, they could make for really good friends and they're all unsurpassably loved. And we don't have to run from any of them. We, don't, well, we have to have boundaries. We have to be safe. We have to avoid sin. But we, when people are not sinning and they're not dangerous, man, we can dwell with anybody. And God calls us to dwell with them. If, um, if this is appealing to you, um, I've just kind of just barely dipped my toe in, in the book, Confident Humility. It's uh, available on Amazon for pre-order. I'm also teaching a seven-week class here starting March 31st. Uh, so feel free to sign up for that at the desk. And um, uh, I would like to ask the prayer team to come forward. If you have any needs that you need prayer for, or if you uh, feel like, you know, I would like to devote myself to Jesus as one, my, my one true teacher and start this inward out path, um, I encourage you to talk to them about that as well. I want to just close with prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for the ministry of Woodland Hills and thank you so much for the opportunity to give a little bit of my work back. Uh, this ministry has been such a blessing and I just pray that my, my teaching can bless people and, and can help people as they, as they pursue you and, and uh, you know what, Lord? We're all trying to pursue you the best that we can. And some of us take very different paths. And I just pray that you open our hearts and our minds to people who are on very different paths than us so that we can all kind of seek you together in our own strange ways. And I pray that you bless our efforts as we come against the forces that lead to the horrible things that we saw in Christ church. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, you guys.
0: Hi, folks. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm a senior pastor of Woodland Hills Church. We're right now in the middle of SOMA, which is our School of Missional Apprenticeship. Uh, this awesome community of students that have come and just live with intentionality in this missional context. I had the opportunity to uh, teach at, at the school sometimes and, and interact with the community in other ways, and it's just been a joy. So, we're taking registrations now for the next coming school year, being this fall. So, check out this message. At Woodland Hills, we want to make as big a splash for the kingdom as possible. Um, and we, we do that through podcasts and things like that and through our writings. But uh, to really get the kingdom on the inside takes more than just hearing a sermon once a week or reading a book. So my life changed when I experienced, at age 26, a, an intensive communal school of ministry apprenticeship. And when I met Greg in the early 80s, we found out that both of us resonated with that type of experience. We've always dreamed for like 25 years that this would happen at Woodland Hills. Aspen Discipleship is Woodland Hills Church's new theological and ministry equipping school, or what we refer to as our seminary for everybody. They're embedded in community, so they can share life with other Jesus followers that will support their training experience and their learning experience in the school. Anyone who really says that they follow Jesus and they really believe that, I feel like they should go through SOMA or something like SOMA, as in, Really, what is Jesus talking about when he's teaching about community and the body of Christ? What do I actually believe? We want to have a school that, that does the head stuff. You know, I, we want to challenge people intellectually, but we also want to challenge them spiritually and relationally and helping to form their character.
1: I was expecting like to get a bunch of theology
0: training and Bible teaching and stuff, which I'm definitely getting. I wasn't realizing
1: how much I was going to learn about community through SOMA and also learn about myself. It's been really good for me to be outside of a like traditional academic setting.
0: Look, I'm a Bible and theology professor at a Christian university, so I believe in the Christian university. But I'd say this to young people, maybe you're called to the Christian university, there's a time and place for that. But I know in my life, I graduated from college and then had this kind of experience before I went to seminary it fits in different places different times and different people's lives but an intensive experience like this in a community context is something you really don't get anywhere else i'm not real big on theology and all this stuff but it like it meets you there and helps you grow and learn and like i like that about i like that about it every day new chunk of scripture a new lecture a new insight from someone like always leaves you like thinking about it and then we live in community. We're around each other a lot. It doesn't stop in the classroom.
1: I have like fallen in love with SOMA hardcore. Like I love it. I can honestly say it's like the best decision of my life so far. There's nowhere else I would rather be.
0: So yeah, it's amazing. I love it.